X-Ray. It's the Beervana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I am your host, Patrick Emerson, and with me as always, beer savant Jeff Owen. <laughs> yeah, savant. <laughs> Not really sure I love that idea. Uh, uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, uh, you're kind of an ignoramus. Beer ignoramus, Jeff Allworth. <laughs> Nevertheless, Jeff writes lots of books, like the Beer Bible, like the new Beer Bible volume, volume 2, which, by the way, I saw is now listed on Amazon. Yes, that's it is. That's pretty exciting. With, with its not quite final book cover. <laughs> well, that's all right. I know, because they keep asking me. That's actually a fascinating story. Well, I'll leave it up to you if it's fascinating. Uh, but they're they're trying to get the right. We're, we're trying to get the exact right beer on the label of the book because it's so important, and we've agreed that it should be kind of hazy, oh. but maybe not too hazy. Like we don't want it to okay. crowd out all thought of other beer styles. Yes. So there's so it keeps we keep going back and forth. Ooh, here's one. It looks like an orange slushy. Ooh, here's one. Eh, I don't know. It's pretty clear. Oh, and we're going back and forth. Should it have, <laughs> should, should it have more? Uh, uh, condensation on it. We can just put condensation on it here, and then they they go back. Somehow they masterfully put condensation on it post photo. photo you know, after they've taken the photograph. Yeah. For for those who haven't seen, I mean, basically the cover is essentially a big full beer glass as its central component. So that's why it's so important. Indeed. Yeah. And obviously, it's, it's got, a beer bottle. Yeah, a, nice, a nice mouth watering beer make you want to buy the book. I suppose is the idea. Well, good luck with that. It was exciting to see it on Amazon. I'll wait for my complimentary copy, but everyone else should go buy go buy one at your local independent bookseller, of course. But it doesn't hurt to have Amazon in on the game, too. You keep talking it down. That complimentary cop- copy may be a long time coming, <laughs> Spinky. Uh, probably never going to come. <laughs> anyway, yeah. we're, we, uh, we're, we're still distant. Uh, we are. We uh, were in our, in our respective homes. My room was getting kind of hot, so I opened the window after my neighbor had finished uh, mowing, I hope, which is why I mentioned it. So if you hear uh, the sounds of neighborhood life, that's why. Um, that's right. <laughs> if it cools off enough, I'll change it. Uh, the weather's quite nice, and hopefully soon we'll be together uh, because we are almost done with our vaccinations. That's right. And, and by we, I should say that you are Patrick Emerson. Professor of economics, economics at our Oregon State University. So, uh, well, I introduce yeah. myself as your host, which I think basically is all encompassing. <laughs> it's true. but yes, and I do we, have a day job, and that is the day job, and uh, and yeah, yeah. We uh, we are. I, I'm getting my second shot uh, on Sunday. You've already had yours, which means uh, two weeks. We can just frolic, like Go breathe crazy. on each other. Like, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'll be fantastic. Hugs all, hugs all around. Exactly. Uh, we can start hugging again if the, <laughs> in the true Oregon fashion. That's right. Uh, yeah, I've, I'm looking super forward to uh, uh, getting out and um, drinking beers, um, maybe because the weather's nice outdoors, but still just being close together around a table, having beers. That'll be really exciting. I'll be very, yeah. very happy to be able to spend a few hours have a few beers, have a nice conversation. That's I will the, too. That's my number one motivation for getting for getting vaccinated. And by the way, for those of you who are uh, hesitant, because I just read there's lots of people hesitant to get their second 
shot if they're taking the Moderna or the Pfizer. I had my second shot and it was no, nothing, nothing happened at all. So excellent. Don't, 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 don't hesitate if you're worried about side effects, just like, you know, watch TV, watch sports or something, (laughs) but it didn't happen. And then, and then uh, I had to end up doing all kinds of extra things. I didn't plan that day because of weird, you know, scheduling snafus and things like that. So it was, it kind of sucked, man. (laughs) I wanted wanted side effects. Uh, Anyway, Uh, but here we are. It's the beer on a show and, and uh, we should get going because we have a fascinating discussion for you today about the scientific frontiers of brewing. And so talking about the Moderna and uh, Pfizer uh, shots actually isn't uh, too far astray of our topic today because we have Nick Harris, one of the founders of Berkeley Yeast, joining us today. Uh, Berkeley is no ordinary yeast lab. The founders met as graduate and postdoctoral researchers at UC Berkeley, where they were genetically engineering yeast and other microbes to make biofuels. They've shifted focus and started bioengineering beer and wine yeast in amazing new ways. And when we say amazing, it's really amazing. Uh, So we'll hear what they're doing now and doing next. But first, we have to give you the news. have a follow-up to our interview in podcast uh, 122 with Garrett Oliver. Uh, you may remember that he had just launched the Michael James Jackson Foundation to support BIPOC brewers in earning professional degrees. And the foundation recently announced the first round of recipients, which is super cool. Uh, and I thought I would just read their names um, and build to the, the last name, which is exciting to me and will be to you too as well. Uh, but they all are fantastic recipients. And so here we'll, we'll start out with Latroya Butts of Five Wits Brewing in Chattanooga, Alexandra Turner, the cellar person at Pikes Peak in Colorado, Lannon Powell, a brewer and distiller at Stranahan's Colorado Whiskey in Denver, Enrique Leva, lead brewer at Heart of Darkness Brewery in Vietnam, and Jonathan Cano, assistant brewmaster at Crux in Bend. So we got oh, an Oregonian right. there. A I know. But, yeah. but you kind of you skipped over the, the Heart of Darkness Brewery in Vietnam? Yeah. So That's I awesome. Read- <laughs> I read about Enrique. He's he's an American and he's bounced around, but he has I think had two stints in Asia, um, which is cool. But he's but the plan and there was a lot of information. If you would like to read more about these folks and see their pictures, I encourage you to do that. Go to I am Garrett Oliver, all one word, uh, at uh, Instagram, and you can see the the uh, the list and the, a longer biography of this, these folks. Um, they they uh, they have great stories and, and they're pretty cool and and in each each case they designate which or they reference which school they plan to use their scholarship for and they're all different schools nice. um, and Enrique is planning to come back to uh, America and do it at, at at UC Davis sort of the, the classic old school brewing school so yeah, what my brother did uh, yeah. Heart of Darkness Brewing in Vietnam is is uh, a phenomenal <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> phenomenal name for those of you. Uh, uh, both Joseph Conrad fans and uh, uh, Apocalypse Now fans. Apocalypse, yeah, Apocalypse which, Now, of <laughs> which which I am both. Uh, Jonathan Cano, uh, congratulations! That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, I now I want to stop in a bit and say congratulations. Yeah. Uh, well, good news. Uh, okay. Next one in the news from the UK that roiled the beer world there 
Craft Darling Cloudwater, oh yeah, announced recently it would release four core beers in Tesco. Oh, Tesco controls 30% of the UK trade. Walmart, by contrast, has just a quarter of the US market. The Tesco Cloudwater will be brewed at BrewDog. Yet to complicate yet to complicate the narrative further, they will also release a mixed four-pack featuring collaborations with four minority-owned craft breweries, all of whom will receive the profits from those sales. Phew. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 it's it's important to sort of paint the picture of uh, of beer in, in the UK though. Like Tesco would normally have some, you know, cheap lagers basically. Uh, and not a whole lot else. Like the, 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 the sort of the package market is pretty underdeveloped, I suppose, relative to what the U.S. has. Maybe it's not underdeveloped, it's just different. And, um, and, and as I understand, Tesco drives prices way down, which makes it cost prohibitive for most breweries, even if they were to be able to get into Tesco to be able to make any money doing it. it. Exactly. So. It's kind of that Walmart thing where they just, they just hammer, hammer, hammer suppliers on price. And so, yeah, we heard that years ago about uh, Tesco being sort of <laughs> a bad a bad actor in the space, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I can see how this is um, uh, interesting, and it's interesting that it'd be brewed at BrewDog as well, which is you know obviously the a, a big production brewery now. Yeah. So for our uh, listeners, it would be like if Breakside or Upright, if you're in Portland, or maybe Hill Farmstead, if you're thinking nationally, uh, Cloudwater has a status sort of like those breweries, were to partner with, oh, I don't know, uh, Lagunitas to make a beer especially for Walmart. <laughs> for Walmart, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, and that seems all, con- you know, you want to condemn all of that, but then they, they partner with, uh, Four, four diverse breweries, and those four diverse breweries get all the money from that massive infusion, um, which uh, suggests which suggests that they knew that this was going to go over, not maybe not so well. Well, that's true, but uh, I will say that Cloudwater's Paul Jones, uh, the owner there, is has long been a champion of underrepresented. Uh, people in the brewing industry. And so this is completely consistent with what he's done in the past. So I'm not surprised to see that. But boy, if you want to see an explosion on Twitter, go back Uh, a couple of weeks. Okay. So I'll give you a contrarian (laughs) take because I'm an economist and that tends to be what we do, which is, you know, getting craft beer in the door at Tesco, you know, it, um, it reminds me of the way that, you know, if you were well, now it's been a while, but 30 years ago, you walk into a supermarket in Oregon, it's the same old thing. You'd see a lot of Budweiser and Miller and Bush and Hams and Rainier if you're in the Northwest. Uh, and now uh, the craft sort of um, dominates the the beer aisle, right? You got two thirds of the beer aisle at your local Safeway or um, uh, 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 Kroger, um, Fred Meyer, which is the Kroger brand here. Uh, we'll be about two thirds craft beer and about one third macro. So uh, I, I suppose a contrarian view is that once you sort of get that wedge in there, you might start opening up space for other craft brewers and um, at a price point that is, you know, manageable. Yeah. So yeah, there. <laughs> so there. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly agnostic. I was just mainly agog as this thing exploded. Uh, yeah, it was, it was extremely good entertainment. So (laughs) that's, that's my engagement in this whole thing. All right. Well, we should probably turn to our, um, uh, interview, but before we do, I'm going to, to take this moment to uh, crack a beer because this is a a beer podcast and it does happen to be Friday afternoon. Uh, and, and, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to crack. So we, a while ago had a, had a, a podcast where we 
looked at some uh, uh, smoothie sours, and uh, we had different takes on them. But there is a there is a local brewer here in Eugene, Oregon, named Claim Fifty Two, and uh, they have gone a whole hog into the smoothie sours and bring out special smoothie sours almost weekly. It seems that they seem to just go through them fast. I was down there recently. Uh, because my older son is a University of Oregon student, and um, we went to the brew, well, to the pub, uh, uh, and there they had on tap a couple of their latest ones. We got a few cans. Um, the last ones, in fact, they go really fast, apparently. Uh, so what I have today is Claim 52's, uh, the the series I think they call is Thick, uh, T-H-I-C-C, so wink, wink. Uh, and um, they are thick beers because they're smoothie sours. This one happens to be one that is bubble tea flavored. And I'm not even exactly sure what I'm about to drink. Huh. Well, while you're while you're sampling that and pouring that out, I will say that I, I have also a sour, a, a Cascade Brewing beer, Blue Verbena, oak-aged sour ale with blueberries and lemon verbena. Okay, so so the smoothie sours are more smoothie than beer, I think, generally. Uh, uh-huh. So if you like that, then that's what you're getting. Um, this one is not quite as thick, uh, but well, the thing is, I don't really know what a bubble tea is supposed to, is supposed, is supposed to taste like. It's um, kind of, you know, sort of raspberry, blackberry colored somewhere in there. Mm. Well, that's very interesting. See, the problem is I don't actually drink bubble tea, but I thought bubble tea comes in lots of different flavors. I didn't know there was one one uh, type of bubble tea. This one... Maybe there's a standard and then variations on it. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't give me any, any uh, information about what the fruits are that they used. It's a ton of fruit. It's quite lovely, actually. I, I can tell there's a little bit of maybe a hint of tapioca, which I know is the the key ingredient to bubble tea, but the fruits mm-hmm. themselves are, you know, mostly berry. I think, I think that the, the color gives it away. It's sort of like a, a boysenberry almost flavor with a little bit of tapioca. So there you go. <laughs> well, very nice. Uh, by the way, I had a couple of other ones, um, uh, uh, that they had. One was apple pie, which, had, which I thought was, um, atrocious, but uh, I recognize that they were going for apple pie and that's what they got. I just didn't want to drink an apple pie when I have a beer. Uh, and then they had a raspberry lemonade, which I thought was really nice, uh, really quite nice. It was tart and, um, and refreshing. Uh, so, so there you go. So claim 52 in Eugene, Oregon, uh, shout out to you guys. They're doing some pretty interesting stuff. Um, if you really like your smooth fruit smoothie style beers, go for it. So All right. About well, your, so tell me about I- yours. I'll tell you about mine when we come back from the end of the interview, because uh, I want to tie it into what we, we talked about. Okay. How's that sound? All right. So why don't we uh, then um, make haste to our interview with Nick Harris of Berkeley Yeast. Nick Harris, along with Charles Denby and Rachel Lee, founded Berkeley Yeast in 2017. Two of the founders were working in a lab at UC Berkeley, where the goal was to have yeast produce the primary flavor determinants of Cascade hops. With the help of National Science Foundation grant, a National Science Foundation grant, excuse me, Berkeley Yeast grew out of this project, and now the company engineers yeast to produce surprising compounds, or in one case, stop producing them. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Hello, Jeff, as well. 
Hey, Nick. Uh, so we always ask the guests how close we got uh, <laughs> to accurate in our introduction. And if you want to fix anything there. Yeah, no, I, I think that was pretty good. Nice work. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Jeff, Jeff's always insecure. Uh, you know, one, one, one out of 10 times we get it completely clean. So that's good. Cool. You, you're lucky. <laughs> so uh, this is a super fascinating project. Uh, I hadn't really, I, I had, we, we, we found you by um, learning about a another yeast company that makes a, a particular variety of uh, modified yeast, uh, and they led to you and your company, which actually does quite a bit more of these kinds of yeasts. And we had a conversation that was super fascinating. And I thought uh, to get going, we, we're gonna we're gonna talk some science, but Nick is fantastic at unpacking. Uh, all those, what, what all those things mean. So let, let's get in gently and start off with uh, how this project developed. You guys are all uh, academics there in the Bay Area. So, so tell us about that. Yeah, so I, I came out to the Bay Area um, to get my PhD in microbiology at uh, Berkeley. And I was in a lab uh, that studied, we did uh, natural product discovery so we were actually trying to identify new molecules uh, produced by different bacteria. And so my project was actually in tuberculosis, and I was trying to figure out uh, a, a molecule that's made during the course of infection that helps tuberculosis cause disease. So when it's producing this molecule, it's, it's more, uh, more pathogenic, um, totally you know, not related to brewing at all. Um, but simultaneously, I, I was a home brewer, and I had actually worked at a brewery in Austin, Texas, uh, Black Star Co-op, for, for a short stint. And before that, I started a biofuel company uh, called Gourmet Butanol. And so I was using uh, fermentation to make that biofuel. And so that was really my whole start into fermentation. Um, and my love uh, for beer kind of grew out of that passion for fermentation. So while I was at uh, Cal or uh, UC Berkeley, um, as some people call it, um, yeah. I met uh, the two other co-founders, uh, Rachel Lee and Charles Demby. And so Rachel uh, was a grad student in my program, and Charles was a postdoc. Uh, and both Rachel and Charles were in Jay Kiesling's lab. Jay Kiesling is... Um, one of the top experts in synthetic biology, uh, his lab focuses on engineering different microbes to get them to produce different useful chemicals. Uh, his lab has done a lot of work into biofuels. A, a lot of those molecules are, are related to terpenes. And he's also fairly famous for uh, having yeast that make cannabinoids. Um, there's a recent recent paper out right now. Um, it was it was published uh, I think last year, uh, where yeast can make ca cannabinoids basically from sugar. Um, <laughs> and Charles, that was actually one of his uh, first projects as a postdoc in his lab was was initiating that project. Um, and so Rachel and Charles uh, started this in kind of uh, becoming a long winded story, but. Uh, they were both doing research into terpene biosynthesis, and Charles realized, he was also a home brewer, and he realized that a lot of the same molecules that hops contain, 
uh, look a lot like the biofuels that they were trying to make in Jay's lab. Hmm. And so he kind of, you know, thought that, wow, I could probably get yeast to make some of the primary flavor determinants of these different hop cultivars. And it turns out that uh, Cascade hops, the primary flavor determinants of, of Cascade hops are linalool, geraniol, and citronellol, three different terpenes. And so Rachel and Charles sought out to get yeast to produce those three terpenes um, with the hypothesis that they could reconstitute hop flavor in a beer without even using hops at all. And uh, so they went out looking for different genes uh, that are capable of producing uh, those, those three terpenes. And a gene, just to kind of make sure everybody's on the same page, a, a, yes, good. A, a gene is a, is a piece of DNA that, uh, so it's, it's a bunch of nucleotides uh, that provide a code for an amino acid, uh, for, for different amino acids. And so you have a gene, it's a long stretch of, of nucleotides, and that's a code for different amino acids that when pieced together comprise a single enzyme. And an enzyme does biochemical work. So it's able to produce different molecules. So basically, they went out looking for different genes that encoded different enzymes that are capable of doing different biochemical reactions that lead to the production of these three different terpenes. Mm. And so they looked into a bunch of different edible plants, um, more than I can remember. Um, but they found out that both mint and basil contained genes that are really good at um, making these different terpenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't actually uh, just, <laughs> what's pretty cool about modern biotechnology is you don't actually need to go out and find these plants in nature. Um, <laughs> all you need to do is, is find the genetic sequences. So all of these plants have been sequenced and you can actually find these gene sequences um, in different databases. And then the DNA is just printed. Um, so is that like software? It's just coding. Um, some somebody is is doing the coding. Uh, most of these programs are just open source, or there there are different websites that you can use um, to to identify different genes and figure out what they their activities are. So people have done a lot of research into not only have they sequenced all these genomes, but they've they've figured out what most of the coding sequences, most of these genes that, that actually encode proteins or enzymes, enzymes and proteins can kind of be used interchangeably. Um, okay. And uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll use a lot of these different websites or software to identify genes that um, the activities have already been well elucidated, meaning that people know what they do. Um, right. They know all of their different activities. And Enzymes are really specific in their activities, so they'll typically do one thing. Like, for instance, an acyl transferase will acylate, um, meaning it will make esters, um, and it won't do other. It, it won't make alcohols, and it won't make aldehydes or ketones or any of these other chemicals uh, structures that you may have heard of. It will do one thing, and so uh, you know, at universities, people have taking these genes, turn them into proteins, and then study the, the function of those proteins or enzymes. Um, and so when I say that they, they tried a lot of different plant genes, what they did is they, they identified these different gene sequences that they knew encoded 
terpene synthases, which is a class of enzyme that that makes a terpene. Mm-hmm. And basically, not all of those are going to be active inside of a yeast cell. Yeast might prefer uh, a certain terpene synthase. And, and there are a lot of reasons that that might be. Maybe it's that these genes aren't, aren't turned on very well um, or turned into RNA, which is then turned into a protein, which we can get into a little bit later. But um, and it may be that the proteins that are encoded aren't even stable in yeast. And so if you're trying to make a new molecule, you typically try a lot of different versions of the same type of enzyme. Um, so even though mint and basil and a tomato all might have a, a gene that encodes a specific terpene synthase, all of those terpene synthases will be a little bit different. And one of those will probably function better in a yeast cell. Oh, and see. so they had to find these different uh, variants of, of the same type of terpene synthase and try them out um, in, in, in the yeast. And, and basically what that looks like is you, you take this gene that you've found on, um, you know, through, through the software, you have it printed, and then you use their different uh, techniques that you can use. One, one uh, that's really familiar to a lot of people is CRISPR, uh, mm-hmm. which is just a really good way of of taking a specific gene sequence that that's of of interest and inserting it into a chromosome or you know a longer stretch of DNA that contains multiple um, multiple genes, many many genes. This is where all the genetic information is is held is on these chromosomes, and uh, something like CRISPR or other endonucleases can go to a very specific point on a chromosome and insert uh, whatever gene as you're trying to insert at that at that position um, with no off-target effects. Um, and so, uh, again, they, they found these different terpene synthases uh, that were of interest and then plugged them into the yeast cell using, for, for the initial work it was with CRISPR, we no longer use CRISPR, um, but for their initial, the initial paper that was published um, back in, I think, 2017, they published a, a paper in uh, Nature Communications that was using CRISPR. Um, so they plugged in these different terpene synthases and then found different variants that were really good at making these three different terpenes. Um, so, so did it work? Did it, did it taste <laughs> like Cascade Hops? And then Patrick has a question as well. Yeah, so it, it worked pretty well. Um, so... They actually did a collaboration with the with Charlie Bamforth's lab at UC Davis and uh, with Lagunitas, and that research was um, at Lagunitas was headed up by Brian Donaldson, um, and it went through. They they brewed beers at UC Davis, brought them over to Lagunitas, and they did a, a you know blind sensory. Uh, I think it was yeah. double blind, and the sensory panel. Um, they determined. So, so this yeah. was this was uh, with was, was it no hops or just like not dry hopped or what was the yeast the, the with the modified yeast what what was the hop yeah in the in the basic so beer? so the the basic so it was all the same grist it was you know one wort stream that was knocked out into multiple vessels and then fermented with either uh, this terpene producing strain or uh, chico ale yeast just you know California ale yeast. Uh, which right. which was the parental strain for this for the terpene strain? Um, you you can take any any house strain, any parental strain, uh, any yeast strain, and engineer to do these different activities. So in this case, it was California ale yeast, and so one fermenter was the terpene strain, another one was California ale yeast, and then 
so there was uh, no dry hop on both of those, just bittering hops. And then there was um, a dry hopped uh, California ale yeast. And uh, the, the sensory panel uh, declared or heard, uh, the data uh, indicated that the, the no hopped terpene producing yeast strain was hoppier than <laughs> the dry hopped California ale yeast. Um, it's, it's, it makes a really nice uh, floral citrus aroma. I uh-huh. wouldn't say it's a direct replacement for hops. Hops have a lot of other notes uh, beyond those three uh-huh. terpenes. Uh, for sure. instance, a lot of the green notes that you might get in a hop, those are different aldehydes. And mm-hmm. that is missing in this yeast. Uh, there are actually you know, hundreds of different compounds that comprise hop flavor. And so by just picking out you know, the three most important ones, you don't quite get all the way there. Um, right. Of course, there are thiols, which is you know a new hot hot word in, in the brewing industry. These are like <laughs> guava passion fruit um, characteristics that you get from like Nelson hops um, or mosaic or citra. Um, anyways, the yeast does a pretty good job of getting probably like seventy five percent of the way there, um, but then it's missing something. So I, I always think of it as it's kind of like one hop cultivar in a mix. So you don't typically do a single hop beer. I mean, some people do, but if you're adding multiple hops in, this could be one of them. Um, right. It gives you, it gives you a layering. Yeah. Flavor. It gives you a layering effect. So if you layer it with, with some other hops, uh, you know, maybe some mosaic, the, the citrus and floral notes might just pair really well. Um, with that and, and just kind of enhance the aroma. Um, I'm get sorry. I'm guessing you're also missing the bittering com, uh, compounds. Is that true? You are b- missing the bittering compounds, which actually I think a lot of people appreciate. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's kind of been a shift recently towards less bitter beer. Um, yeah, of course. And so it's great for, for generating quite a lot of aroma um, without uh, bitterness. Right, um, and right. so I think some of the best beers that have been brewed with that specific yeast strain uh, have been um, like Blondales or just really simple mm. grain grain bills with very you know no no dry hop at all, just just letting the yeast really shine. Wow. Um, I wanted to go back just for a second sure. because <clears throat> to a lay person, this sounds a heck of a lot like what you're doing. Sounds a heck of a lot like what they're doing with the mRNA vaccines in the sure. sense that you're inserting a gene and then you're getting a cell to make a specific protein. Is that right? Am I making, is that a, is that a yeah. reasonable parallel? Yeah. So the central dogma of genetics is that DNA makes RNA, which makes mm-hmm. protein. And so a gene is, you know, again, a, a piece of DNA, which is transcribed into mRNA. mRNA mm-hmm. stands for messenger RNA. And it's that that process is uh, done by RNA polymerase, and uh, then the mRNA is translated into protein, and it's translated right. into protein by a ribosome. Um, and so, and so, essentially, your proteins are the ones that are giving off these um, uh, flavors. 
as opposed to like <laughs> yeah, getting your yeah. immune system so, to so kick in, in the and case attack of, it. Yeah, in the case of, you know, like a Pfizer shot, for instance, that mRNA encodes a spike protein, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a, a very important protein um, that our immune system will recognize. But uh, in the case of what we're doing, we're, we're inserting DNA. So one step upstream from the mRNA step. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're, we're inserting a little piece of DNA into the yeast chromosome, which will you know, be turned into mRNA, which will then be turned into an enzyme. And these enzymes will make different flavor compounds. Or uh, as you alluded to earlier, we have one strain that gets rid of a flavor compound. So it gets rid of diacetyl. Um, wow. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the different kind of categories of stuff that you, so you started with these terpene producing yeast strains, um, which are interesting, but, uh, rather than just make a whole bunch of different flavor, like you, you, uh, you know, a company could just do ones where we're going to have a strawberry yeast and a, uh, mango yeast and right. all these different flavors. You did different categories of stuff, including what you just mentioned, this diacetyl free uh, strain, which does something entirely different. Um, yeah. So let, let's hear about that. Yeah, totally. So we, as um, you know, we started with terpene producing strains. Um, that that seemed like a good place to start, especially given the fact that that Charles and Rachel had spent so much time studying uh, terpenes and terpene synthases. And then from there, I think our next strain that we developed was um, a strain that makes melon flavor. And so mm-hmm. we actually took a gene from cantaloupe and, uh, you know, insert it into the yeast chromosome, and which it confers the ability to produce just huge melon notes. Um, the first yeast strain that we made actually made way too much melon and uh, borderline ruined some beers. Um, it, just, <laughs> it was bl- blasting. It was basically at 11. <laughs> And, uh, but luckily as genetic engineers, we have tools, uh, that we can use to, to tweak how much of the end product we're making. So you can control how much a gene is turned on. There are these dimmer switches, genetic dimmer switches called promoters. Um, and the reason they're called promoters is because they're promoting gene expression and mm-hmm. all a promoter is, it's, it's a small piece of DNA that's immediately before a gene. And what it's actually doing is it's recruiting RNA polymerase. Um, and so depending on how strong a promoter is, that's, that's how people talk about it, is the strength of a promoter. Um, so depending on how strong a promoter is, it will change how much a gene is turned on or, or really like how much a gene is expressed and turned into uh, mRNA. So the mm-hmm. more a gene is turned on, the more mRNA that's made and the more protein that, that is also made. And if there's more protein around or, or more of this enzyme around, uh, you can have more of the final product produced. And so in our case, we had a strong promoter that was turning on this melon gene, um, making a lot of RNA, making a lot of the enzyme that, that then makes melon flavor. And we said, whoa, this is way too intense. And so we then subsequently tried weaker promoters or promoters that bind uh, RNA polymerase to a lesser extent, therefore making less RNA and less enzyme and less melon flavor. Um, Mm -hmm. And so 
this is really cool. We actually have a whole library of different promoters that, that we use. Um, these promoters are just naturally in the yeast. So you can think of yeast as just being uh, these biochemical factories where they have thousands of different genes. Each of these genes is turned on at different points of, in time during fermentation. And uh, each of these genes is turned on to a greater or lesser extent. Not all of the genes are just ripping all the time. You know, some of them are silent. Some of them turn on under heat stress. Some of them turn on when the yeast is in stationary phase or, you know, when you're at terminal gravity. Sometimes a gene is just turned on, you know, very lightly, maybe throughout the entire course of fermentation. But what we do is we look at um, basically when all of the genes are turned on, there, there are different papers that have already been published on a lot of this information, but um, people have studied when different genes are turned on and to what extent they're turned on. And they, they, they know that by looking at how much mRNA is being made by each of these genes. Mm -hmm. And then basically we trace it back to the promoter that's driving the expression of each of those genes. And then we mm -hmm. say, look, oh, this, this gene is turned on typically. It, it could be a gene that's not related to what we're studying at all, but say, look, this gene is turned on at day three during fermentation. That's right after CO2 evolution kind of stops. So maybe we're trying to make some uh, flavor compound that is really volatile that will be lost if it we're producing at the start of fermentation when, when the yeast is producing a lot of CO2. So we'll choose that promoter that, again, was turning on a gene at day three. We'll take that promoter and put it in front of our gene of interest that's making this volatile flavor compound. And then uh, in the best case scenario, the gene that, that we're trying to get turned on at day three will indeed get turned on at day three and will preserve more of those aromatics. Um, and so anyways, we have this whole library of promoters um, that we can use. And uh, that's, again, how we might iterate on a strain. So in the case of melon, we were able to turn it down by, by choosing a weaker promoter. <laughs> Um, does this, sorry, yeah, does this no depend uh, on the host, uh, the type of yeast you're using? Will, will that, will all of those uh, uh, sort of levels change? Is, yeah. I guess <laughs> one way to say it. That's a great question. Um, so uh, in short, yeah, it, it does, it does depend on, on the host. Um, they, not all yeast are created equal. Um, mm -hmm. All yeast, as, as you can probably tell through, if you were to, you know, split one wort stream into a thousand different fermenters and ferment it with a thousand different yeast strains, you'd probably end up with close to a thousand different beers. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you'd right. end up with a thousand different beers is because all of these yeasts are turning on genes to, uh, some of them might contain extra genes, some of them, um, but, but if they all had the same genes, let's just say for one second that they all have the same genes, but different mm -hmm. promoters, which is kind of the case, you would find that they're making different flavors um, throughout that whole process because they're turning each gene on to um, a varying degree. Um, and so basically they'd, they'd be making different amounts of, of enzymes and different amounts of, of the flavor compounds that are encoded by each of those genes. Um, and, and sorry, I have one yeah, other no <laughs> technical question, which is sure. when you propagate the yeast that you have now encoded yeah. with your instructions mm -hmm. do they propagate well like do they do they replicate the instructions um faithfully yeah so um this is a great question uh the yeast that we've engineered we uh 
we really make sure that, first of all, that they, they grow um, and ferment identically to the parental strains that we're using for the engineering, meaning mm-hmm. that they'll attenuate and flocculate, flocculate and hit the same final pH as, let's just say, California ale yeast, if that's what we're using. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, most yeast, most ale strains are, are tetrapoid, meaning that they have four copies of each chromosome. And mm-hmm. so when we insert a, a gene into uh, the yeast genome, we'll actually insert one copy. We'll insert that gene into each copy of, of those chromosomes, so at four positions. And so that way the, the yeast can't kick it out. So it's, um, it's, it's totally genetically stable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, assuming that the, the brewers are, are fermenting the yeast at um, you know, a reasonable temperature, and it's a reasonable gravity, let's just say between uh, six and twenty-five or so, uh, Plato. Then you, you can kind of um, assume that the yeast is going to behave in a similar way. Um, right. Some which yeah. which, which uh, those those restrictions apply to any yeast in any condition, not just the yeast you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. So we have the terpene strain, the melon strain. Uh, and then um, we've actually created well over a thousand different yeast strains in over the years. Uh, a lot of them are, are variants of might be one trait, but we've tried a lot of different promoter combinations, or maybe it's a multi-step biochemical pathway, meaning that multiple genes are required to make a flavor compound. And right. uh, in which case, we'll we'll have you know we'll toggle the expression of, of each of those genes. So. We'll, try out different promoter combinations to get the perfect amount of whichever um, compound we're, we're trying to make. Um, and so uh, we, we've done the same techniques with a lactic acid producing yeast. So we have Chico ale yeast that makes lactic acid. Lactic acid is the primary acid in kettle sours. Um, and so this yeast, you just treat it like you would any ale yeast. You, you know, you knock out, you aerate, and pitch pitch the yeast, and a week or two later, you have a perfectly uh, sour beer. Um, we spent a lot of time dialing in how much the, the lactic acid gene is turned on. Um, and so what that means is that we're able to hit a very nice level of acidity every single time, even after repitching. Um, so uh, we have two different strains that are called galactic. One of them we call galactic high. That one produces more acid. It hits a final pH of around 3.5, um, which is kind of like Berliner Weiss or Kettle Sour uh, acidity. And then we have another strain. We call it galactic light because it makes less lactic acid. It typically finishes at a pH of around 3.7 to 3.9, which is more like just a nice tartness, um, maybe like goes a level of acidity. Um, and... Then we have a strain that uh, that gets rid of diacetyl. So we have, wait before we go yeah, to the diacetyl. Yeah, you go for it. I got sure. <laughs> I, a, I, I had just an observation sure. that that spring, that, that um, springs to mind is when, when you when we're talking about these different kinds of yeast strains, they seem uh, like like they 
or kind of have this unlimited capacity. But this does point out that when once you peg one of these particular characteristics to a gene, uh, you know, to a, to in, into the yeast cell, it is fixed. So unlike you know, if you're going to do kettle souring, uh, where you can tinker with the the amount of lacto you pitch or you know other techniques. Um, you, you know, you, you get what you get when, with, with whatever's encoded in the genome of this yeast cell and the same with the terpenes and stuff. So that's, that is sort of one of the interesting kind of byproducts um, of, of this. It, there, there is no magic bullet in brewing. Sure. Yeah. Um, I will say though that a lot of these strains, I may have made it sound a little bit uh, more simple than it is. Some, some of these you can control <laughs> how, how much uh, flavor they're making or, or lactic acid they're making. So in the case of, oh really how, how do you do that yeah like in the case of galactic um we have some preliminary data that that basically when you ferment at a higher temperature they make more lactic acid um mm, yeah and then of course you know uh if somebody says wow these terpenes i'd like them turned up you could always just make another yeast strain that that has a stronger promoter to, to make more but Sometimes we do find that there are environmental conditions that that will uh, stimulate the yeast to produce more of, of whatever compound mm-hmm. it is that we're trying to get them to produce. Oh, that's um, interesting. It is true that um, yeast tends to be more expressive at a warmer temperature. So I right. suppose there are ways ways in the brew house you can tinker with this stuff. Sure, sure, and and also like we've noticed that uh, fruit additions, the the fruit uh, also has a lot of um, they have their own acids. A lot of those are like citric acid and malic acid. Uh, those also contribute to the final final pH or titratable acidity of the beer. And so you can actually, you know, get a more acidic beer by adding fruit, which most sours um, or a lot of kettle sours these days are, are actually fruited. Um, right. And so you can always play around with that. And then um, it does also seem like knockout pH can affect how you know the final acidity of the beer, um, and so a lot of people might might actually um, modify the the pH of, of you know of, of the wort when they're knocking out. So you could also control that. So you're not totally just stuck with whatever the yeast is doing. I think there are some process variables that that can also be tweaked. Okay, Di- this the, this next one is I have to say of all the yeasts you make the the most kind of uh, revelatory to me so let's talk about the diastole free one yeah diastole free is really cool because it performs exactly like the parental strains so we have two different versions we have a, a chico aliased one and we have a london uh version and so these these two yeast strains perform identically to the strains that we use for the engineering so they don't change the flavor profile of the beer they don't change the mouthfeel or, or any of that so these are strains that are very familiar to most brewers, and they can just replace them with diacetyl-free and, and not see any real difference in, in the final beer with one exception, and that exception is that the yeast is no longer making diacetyl, um, which, uh, but other than that, it ferments identically to the parental strains. So diacetyl is produced um, as a byproduct of branched-chain amino acid biosynthesis, and so what's happened is uh, diacetyl is, is, has become more of an issue recently because uh, hops have uh, started to be kilned at lower temperatures. And since the, the kilning temperature has dropped, what that's done is preserved more uh, amylases and dextranases that, that the hops have. 
And so when you introduce a lot of hops during the dry hopping process, uh, a lot of these amylases and dextrinases are released into the wort. And what happens is that these, these enzymes will break down longer chain sugars that the yeast mm. would not be able to consume uh, in that form. And so when they start to chop apart these longer chain sugars, the yeast will start to consume the smaller sugars that are released in that process. This typically happens you know, at least a few days into fermentation. And by that time, because that's when people dry hop, so people dry hop, you know, typically around, I don't know, day five or so, maybe even later. And at that point of fermentation, most of the amino acids in the wort have already been consumed by the yeast. And so as the yeast is eating the sugars that are being rela- released uh, by the activity of these amylases, um, the yeast will need to produce their own amino acids. Uh, they'll have to biosynthesize their own amino acids because, again, they've already consumed all that was provided to them uh, mm-hmm. from, from the mash. And so uh, what happens in that process as a byproduct of amino acid biosynthesis, the yeast produces a compound called acetolactate. And acetolactate is secreted outside of the yeast cell, and it very slowly and spontaneously, it's not an enzymatic reaction, it will turn into diacetyl. Hmm. But what happens... And, and we should explain for the listeners that diacetyl is, is, a, is a flavor compound that uh, can be, in higher levels, quite, quite striking. It's... It's um, kind of a butterscotch, buttery flavor. Uh, can be kind of sweet. It has a texture, a slickness on the tongue, and I mean, most styles is considered an off flavor. Yeah. So now carry on. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's actually not even at high concentrations. It's at a hundred parts per billion. So mm-hmm. um, that's uh, one hundred micrograms per liter. So not not that much can um, can kind of ruin a beer, actually. Um, yeah. so- <laughs> I, th- I assume that the flavor threshold goes up a little bit when you're dry hopping with, let's say, four pounds per barrel. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what's been published is around 100 uh, ppb. Um, and so, uh, yeah, diacetyl is, is no good. Uh, yeast, again, through after dry hopping, they consume these sugars. They'll produce acetolactate. The acetolactate is secreted outside of the yeast cell. It's spontaneously turned into diacetyl, but over time, Acetolactate is practically flavorless, or at least at the th- uh, concentrations in, in beer, um, even when it's in, you know, at the, con- at the most, uh, like at the highest concentration that a yeast cell can produce, it's still pretty much flavorless. Um, and mm-hmm. so a brewer might taste their beer, let's just say two days after dry hopping, and they say, wow, this is amazing. And they cold crash and package the beer, they keg it and they send it off to their accounts. But all of that acetolactate is still in, in solution. And so uh, a couple weeks later, it, it may be that all of that acetolactate has slowly turned into diacetyl. And so then they're pouring the same beer that this brewer tasted two weeks before and at a bar. And you know somebody says, whoa, this is a butter bomb. And the beer gets recalled. Or, you know, it's a bad score on untapped, more likely. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So this brings us, sorry, I'm going yeah, no to interject, interject my crass economist sure, sure. Uh, mind in here, which is yeah. the business advantages of your yeast yeah. are pretty clear. For example, if I can cut down on my hot bill and, uh, and not have to deal with much of the variation there, um, not having to do a diacetyl rest or, or, right. or suffering a diacetyl um, bomb later. Right. Uh, it seems like there are some pretty significant uh, advantages. One thing I was just going to ask you in, in, in that same vein is, have you thought about other ways in which you can make yeast work faster? <laughs> seems yeah. Like- <clears throat> yeah. Um, we have thought about it. I, I think it's a fairly complex, um, it's, it's, it's complex, but there are definitely different levers that we can pull. And mm-hmm. um, it is it is something that we're working on. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then um, I I, yeah. I thought I would also just interject here, um, sort of because I assume that there's going to be some people listening who the first thing they think about is that you're uh, by definition genetically modifying the yeast, and therefore you're creating a beer that's genetically modified. Sure. What do you say to critics who point that out? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I I think that most people probably. Um, well, there are a couple things. First, I think that yeast is considered more of a processing agent, and so mm-hmm. um, it, most of the yeast is is being removed in the process of brewing beer. Not not all right. of it, but the large majority of the yeast is is settling out in the fermenter and mm-hmm. or centrifuged out or filtered out. Um, so there's not there's not that much yeast left behind, if if any. Um, so in that case, I wouldn't really consider the entire beer to be a, a GMO necessarily, but right. but even if you did consider it a GMO, I think for the most part that it's most people don't don't really find that to be an offensive thing. Um, I think that the reason that that people like at least we haven't seen very much pushback uh, from it from consumers uh, from beer consumers uh, is that. Um, I think that people are just really educated these days and, and they have a better grasp on science. And I think that this is sounding less, um, I think people just kind of understand genetics a little bit better and they understand the fluidity of life that, mm-hmm. uh, just because you took a gene from, let's say mint and put it into yeast, you're not doing anything that like, you're not consuming anything different than you would have consumed if you had a mojito. Um, right. like you're, you're eating the same, <laughs> DNA, you're eating the same food grade flavor compounds that were contained in that in the in the mint. So whether or not a yeast is using that gene to make uh, a terpene, or if you're eating mint DNA and eating those terpenes from from chewing on a mint leaf, um, it's there's really no difference. And I I think that most people kind of understand that, and so I think that most people are are okay with it. And so we really haven't had too much concern about people being scared away about the beer being a, a GMO. Um, yeah. I, I think it's a little different to, I, I, I totally understand people not wanting to eat, uh, you know, genetically engineered crops. Um, I, I think there's just a difference when you're inserting like herbicide resistant genes into a crop and, um, you know, perpetuating monocultures and large scale agriculture instead of, you know, moving more towards like small, small scale community agriculture and, um, I, I think just having yeast make these flavor compounds is, is slightly different. And I think that, that therefore people have just been more okay with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And is your, is because you're genetically modifying it, is, are your, yeah, is your yeast proprietary in the sense that no one else can propagate it, but you, um, 
Yeah, so most fur yeast uh, strains are patented, um, okay. and so that's that's exactly right. Um, that being said, you know people are you know free to repitch the yeast, um, but yeah, we we typically ask that just our strains aren't aren't banked um, for long term right. storage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. I'm hogging the conversation. <laughs> no, that's great. I think I think. I think that's, I mean, uh, on the, just to go back onto the diacetyl thing. And I think, I think we're, we're probably uh, getting kind of long, so we might have to wrap it up after that. But, um, yeah, I I think just to, to kind of put a, uh, you know, not (laughs) to, to put an exclamation point at the end of the sentence, um, when you're dealing with, when you have in the brew house, when you have to deal with diacetyl, uh, it means these waiting periods, uh, which, which you have to contend with. So, with your yeast, you would be you you remove uh, this this uh, the gene that that causes the uh, yeast cell to excrete this thing into the beer, and then later have to take it back in. And so, in doing in, in removing this gene, you make it possible for breweries to push beer through a lot faster through the brew house, mm-hmm. um, which uh, you know it, especially if it's a long if it's a long process like in lagering, um, you know that's that's money saving, and then also not have to worry about what happens when it's on the shelf. Uh, so it seems like this is going to have a pretty, <laughs> like, I, I, I can imagine that brewers really like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Brewers do love it. Um, and they're, they're able to push out beer faster and have peace of mind that, you know, the beer is never going to taste like diacetyl. Um, and we've actually analyzed quite a lot of, of beer, including commercial beer. And um, most beers are treading a fine line from being over, you know, they're, they're really close to flavor threshold. A large majority are slightly over flavor threshold. And so mm-hmm. it's pretty easy, you know, for the scales to tip slightly and, and for them to be a total butter bomb. So, you know, this yeast just, right. just really ensures that you're never going to, to be above flavor threshold. Um, so yeah, the yeast is making uh, an enzyme called acetolactate decarboxylase or ALDC. It's an enzyme that some brewers already add into the fermenter, but the yeast is is making this during the process of fermentation and inside of the yeast cell. So uh, ALDC or this enzyme, uh, it converts acetolactate, the, the precursor to diacetyl, directly into the end product, which is called acetoin. Mm. And so it bypasses diacetyl formation. People could say that, you know, well, I add ALDC, so I, you know, I don't have that issue. But in reality, ALDC added into the beer, uh, it doesn't work that well. And the reason is because the pH of beer is too acidic for that enzyme to work well. It actually degrades the second it hits beer. And so it's Mm -hmm. a weird timing issue of of when do you add it? And is it actually going to be effective when I do add it? Because Again, it degrades right away, but you have to give the yeast some time to produce the acetolactate and secrete it outside of the cell. So in the case of our yeast, it's making this ALDC enzyme whenever it's uh, consuming sugar. So it's on that trigger. So during that re-fermentation that you get with dry hopping, the yeast will consume sugar and then simultaneously produce acetyl, uh, acetolactate and ALDC enzyme all inside of the yeast cell where that acetolactate, the precursor diacetyl, is immediately converted to the end product, acetone. So um, it works really well, and it works every single time. It's, it's totally consistent in every single style of beer that you can think of, and under any brewing condition um, as well. 
Um, yeah, that's amazing. The, the one other yeast that I'd just like to briefly talk about um, that I actually think is the coolest yeast strain that we have is a new one that we're calling Tropics, and it is releasing thiols. Uh, oh, yeah, from, this is cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's releasing thiols uh, from both barley and hops, and thiols are these really nice, complex, tropical uh, aromas mm-hmm. that, that you would typically get, again, from these these sexier hops like Citra, Mosaic, Galaxy, and, and Nelson. Um, it's kind of what distinguishes those those hops from the the sea hops, like Cascade, for instance, is the level of free thial that, that those hops have. Um, but it turns out that all hops have the capacity to be tropical, meaning that they all have precursors uh, to these thials. But mm. these precursors um, so are actually these big amino acids that the thials are stuck onto. And they're flavorless in beer. And so you're typically drinking IPAs that are chock full of these precursors, but they could be much more tropical. And so the yeast is producing a single enzyme that releases thiols from these these amino acids. And so uh, even a beer that isn't hopped at all, uh, just because barley has a lot of these precursors, can be really tropical. it's, It's pretty cool. Um, or you can use hops, uh, let's just say hops that are growing on marginal land, land that's not great for growing food. Um, you, can, you can use a hop cultivar that's disease-resistant uh, and drought-tolerant, uh, more robust to climate change and harsh growing conditions. And those hops will have these precursors. You can ferment it with this yeast strain and get these really great tropical aromas that you would expect from premium hops. So essentially just unlocks those it's, thighs. Yeah, it's a hop unlock. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's exactly. amazing. Yeah. That, that one is really amazing. And I, I suspect you haven't had a chance to try it with all the hops and see how it all functions. And because uh, this is this is a the same is is it the same thing when we talk about biotransformation when yeast uh, in, in dry hopping when yeast unlocks or transforms some of those terpenes? Is it kind of in that same this category. Yeah, this is this is a sim- this is one of the types of biotransformation. Biotransformation can be a lot of different things. Um, it could be the release of sugar molecules off of a terpene, or it could be the formation of different terpene esters. Um, but another one that I think is is what a lot of people mean by biotransformation is the release of thiols, and it turns mm-hmm. out that. Pretty much all yeast are not very good at releasing thiols. I know that some people, you know, might say that a strain is really is a good biotransformer, but we've we've tried a lot of these different yeast strains, and we've also tried expressing, uh, or you know, inserting these genes into a yeast and, and blasting them with a strong promoter. Um, so taking active uh, biotransformation genes from different yeast strains that are thought to be ultra biotransformers, and in reality, they're not that great. So. Um, Anyways, this this strain is really good at doing it. Um, it is a true biotransformer, and um, I I think that a lot of people in the future, or, or maybe now, will start using their surplus hops, um, hops that they have lying around the brewery that are not great, um, and uh, they can turn them into these really, uh, you know, just just get a lot more out of them, or or use way fewer, or use fewer, then, or use fewer, yeah. yeah. I can, I can imagine many benefits of having to use fewer hops. Sure. <laughs> Probably <laughs> yeah. people would really love that. You get more yield. You know, hops absorb a lot of beer. So um, if you exactly. use less yeah. hops, that would that would be one advantage. 
But we love hops, though. I'm not saying use less hops. We're we're huge fans of hops over here at uh, Berkeley East, and <laughs> I, I really think that um, this is a good innovation for the hop industry because, uh, again, maybe hop hop farmers can start planting hops that are more robust uh, to climate change. And so, if they have a bad uh, growing season, they can still get really nice tasting um, beers when fermented with this yeast strain. Well, this has been super fascinating, Nick. Uh, you're doing interesting work, and I we spoke earlier, so I, I had a hint that you're you're working on other projects. So we may have to have you back cool. on the podcast in a few years and and hear what new strains you have and what new things you you've come up with because these are fascinating. Cool. I I appreciate the support, Jeff, and uh, yeah, I, I I would love to come back at some point in time. All right. Well, uh, Patrick, you have anything going out? No, just thank you very much for joining us. It was, it was really fascinating to talk to you. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate it. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks for having me. All right. He is Nick Harris from uh, Berkeley East, and uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks once again to Nick Harris of Berkeley East. That was one of the more fascinating discussions I think we've ever had on a beer podcast. Yeah. Uh, I feel like uh, twice as smart as I did uh, about biochemistry <laughs> than I was 45 minutes ago. Uh, it was really ni- nice of him to spend the time. Yeah. It's really nice to hear that. So it's like, if I, if I got this right, it's like DNA is the, is the blueprint and then RNA is the, the builder and the promoter is the thing that tells the builder like how big to make the building <laughs> or something like that. Uh, so that, that was really a handy way to understand the whole thing. Yeah. I guess the RNA is the message to the cell to make the protein or the enzyme. And then you can have a little, like that message can be amplified by the, by the thingy, whatever you call it. <laughs> mine, was, mine may have been less accurate, but it was much more elegant. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I mean, we, I just find, we, we I were find able to modern. Get yeah, we were, we were able to get our, our brains around it in any case, which was very cool. Yeah, he did a very good job explaining it to the lay the the lay moron that we are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I just find it amazing modern medicine what we are able to do, especially at the genetic level. Now, it's just uh, well, it's just extraordinary. And modern yeast too. So I, I mentioned at the start of the uh, before the inter- interview started that I uh, had this Cascade beer and I wanted to talk about it afterwards because uh, I know the way Cascade makes their beer is they brew the beer and then they throw it in a barrel. and put a bunch of lactobacillus in there and then later mm-hmm. they'll they'll add the botanicals and the fruit or whatever right uh well this is a beer now that they could easily make with nick's yeast right they could just uh throw throw do this all in the just a re- the regular process and go immediately to the stage of throwing in the fruit um and, you know and I think it would actually work pretty well at Cascade because Cascade tends to go for a fairly consistent level of acidity. Mm-hmm. So if they found their their jam, they're not you know they're not going for a bunch of different levels of acidity. Um, so you know I, I mean th- it, it could really I, I, I would be f- I'm going to be fascinated in five or ten years to see if if basically all breweries are using these yeasts for for the opportunities they provide and the 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 cost savings they create. I think it's going to be huge. Yeah. Well, my first th- thought when he was talking about it, and I was sort of pressing him on the business opportunities, was obviously it's a business they're running, is that uh, I imagine that the big brewers are 
uh, chomping at the bit to get their hands on some some of these innovative yeasts because uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that you know if you're a AB InBev and you can cut you can lower the cost of of production you do it right um, and then yeah Absolutely. and then for craft brewers as well it prevent it presents a whole bunch of opportunities especially in the quality control quality assurance uh, field too which can be one of the more tricky things for a small craft brewery yeah the diastole free thing. I mean, that's just going to be, <laughs> people are really going to want to use that. It, it just seems like it, it, you know, it has all upsides The we, we touched briefly on the question of the GMO and how people will feel about that, but that, that appears to be the only downside is, you know, how, how folks feel about that stuff. And, and I wonder if people are actually as concerned about it anymore, because it's been 20 years plus that we've been dabbling in, in these kinds of products. Yeah, and the same technology is saving the world right now. So that's not as bad. But I think one of, the, uh, one of the big differences is part of the reason people are really concerned about GMO crops is because they're out in the wild and they get blown around and the seeds get blown around and they can uh, uh, propagate in, in other fields and they can cross hybridize and things like that. So um, cross pollinate, yeah. I guess. And uh, so I know that that's one of the bigger worries. And so in this case, it's not the same in that sense. Um, so really yeah, what I was going to say for craft brewers, the other thing is that, you know, one of the struggles with craft brewers is often getting really good, fresh, top grade hops. Um, and so, you know, this, these kind of yeast present, present an opportunity perhaps not to have to, uh, even get the right, <laughs> the variety you need if they're a scarce and expensive hop and you can do it through yeast. It's uh, pretty, pretty amazing. Totally. Fascinating uh, stuff. So I, I will throw it out to the listeners. Uh, how do you feel about these yeast strains are are you excited to try beer made from them are you concerned about that yeah um i would or really is be it, curious to hear the thing that i think people might might chafe at a little bit more than the gmo part is just sort of the idea that it's kind of a shortcut that's right. somehow it's whatever. not yeah whatever whatever your concerns or interests are because i can also imagine many people are going to say i want to know where these beers are i'm really excited to try them so let us know. I think it's a it's a fascinating kind of frontier in in brewing that we haven't really crossed yet, uh, or just crossing now. And um, I'm curious to hear what the folks think. All right. Well, uh, hey, so how's your beer, by the way? My beer is uh, quite nice. It's so Cascade Brewing makes um, lacto soured ales. That's mm-hmm. what they've always done. They are barrel aged. Uh, they tend to make them extremely boozy kind of like big powerful yes. flavors and this yeah. is a more subtle version it's only 6.2 percent which for cascade is actually counts as low alcohol mm-hmm. uh <laughs> i always love that uh beers made with blueberry are red they're not blue <laughs> they're kind of like pink pinkish reddish much yeah. more than blue so that's what it looks like uh but it's a it's a gentle hand um the blueberry is quite understated and the uh the lemon verbena is it kind of you know Lemon is already uh, a tart flavor, so it, it just it's sort of like an accent note on the acidity that's already present. It's a very nice yeah. beer. Yeah, and lemon and blueberry is a classic combination. Yeah, the one thing I'll say about the Claim 52, and by the way, I was going to say about these smoothie sours, is I enjoy them when I'm um, when I think of them as a smoothie much more than thinking about them as beer because they're sort of unrecognizable as beer. But one of the things I really appreciate about Claim 52, at least in in a bunch of their series, um, I think sort of standard, they, they do have some big, big more boozy bombs, but for the most part, they're brewing these, um, these smoothie sours uh, at about 5% ABV. Um, so they're, they're really uh, uh, 
light in that sense. You can. That's really. That is really cool. The one it seems like they're commonly quite strong. These. Papers, yeah, the so. one that the one that you you passed along my way, and I honestly at the, the moment I can't remember which of the New England breweries it was, but I think yeah, it was it. It was Trillium, and, and Trillium, it was okay. like a collab collaboration with somebody else who I forget, but I think it was Trillium. Yeah, I thought it was Trillium. I just didn't want to say so if it wasn't, but uh, but yeah, I think that was like eight percent. So it was a pretty big, yeah. <laughs> a pretty big uh, wallop of alcohol. But these ones aren't, and so you can really drink like a big old smoothie, and um, uh, and it's quite nice. I actually appreciate the lower alcohol. So uh, so yeah, so it was good. Well, we should probably uh, uh, jump to the mailbag really quickly and then wrap up um, the mailbag. Today is uh, a follow-up from uh, Bjorn. Okay, and uh, Bjorn helps us with his pronunciation. So uh, Bjorn's, uh, it's uh, the O as in old, so Mosgard, Gord, Mosgard, Mosgard. And the guard as in or, so yeah, Mos. Mosgard, Mosgard. So hopefully Bjorn and I have got that close. I, I probably nailed it, didn't I? Mosgard, Gord, Except- Mosgard. Oh. Except he adds, oh yeah, and the D is silent. Oh no. Okay. Most guard. Gore. Yeah. <laughs> we're, 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 uh, we're butchering your name, Bjorn. But actually, it's been uh, really nice to have a communication. So he says, I love Patrick's excitement over my name. Uh, he talks about the pronunciation. Uh, uh, he is from Aarhus. That's another one I don't know how to pronounce in Denmark. Um, he says, Denmark's not perhaps worth a beer Bible visit, but I think actually you have visited there, no? I have. I've been yeah. to Copenhagen. So there you go. So the beer Bible yeah. has been there, uh, Bjorn. So um, yeah, we're still working on finalizing our uh, our preferred vendor for our t-shirts, but once we, we get them, we'll send one your way. Um, yeah, that's all on you. You offered that and that you were way out ahead of your ski. So I'm that you, you, you're a fulfillment man on that order, my friend. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll be, I'll be sending Bjorn his, his t-shirt <laughs> off to Denmark. I might hand deliver Excellent. it though. Once the pandemic's over. I, okay. Now, now you're talking. That's actually a solid plan. Yeah. We'll go, we'll go, we'll go hit up Bjorn personally. Anyway, Bjorn, thanks very much for keeping in touch and, 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 and do so, uh, continue to do so, please. All right. A few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter at beervanapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beernomics, and I saw you tweet recently, so good man. Yeah, it's been pretty – I've actually kind of been on a Twitter storm on my, on my main non-beery Twitter, but my beer Twitter has suffered as a consequence, so I'll try to, I'll try to post some more beer stuff. on the stick, man. Yeah. Got to get on the important stuff, you know, the beer. Yeah, stuff. beer. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm gonna, I got my claim th- 52 thick bubble tea. All right. I've got blue verbena from Cascade Brewing. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.